Hello and welcome to Asia Perspectives. I am Ritu Bhandari from Policy and Insights team at Economist Impact and today we'll talk about climate loss and damage. Climate change is caused by gases already in the atmosphere and that is why rich industrialized countries are responsible for most of the historical emissions that are heating up our planet today. Poor countries often feel the effects of climate change first. Many of these countries, particularly low-lying island states, want richer nations to compensate them in the form of loss and damage. They argue that they've done the least to cause climate change but are likely to suffer the greatest loss of life and most catastrophic economic impacts. The richer world has resisted these calls, fearing opening up a floodgate for compensation claims. In this year's COP, which took place this November, a crucial development was to include in conversations this highly debated and complex issue of loss and damage. In today's episode, we'll talk in more detail about this important topic and the role that climate litigation could play in shaping loss and damage in the future. I'm joined by an excellent guest, Catherine Hayam, who's a policy fellow at Grantham Research Institute on Climate Change and the Environment at the London School of Economics. Welcome Catherine. Hi, thank you so much for having me on the show today. Can I start by asking you to introduce yourself and the work you do on climate change laws of the world? Absolutely. So I'm based here at the London School of Economics at a research institute that uh, looks across various different issues uh, on climate change and the environment. And the work that I do is really focused on tracking developments in climate change law around the world. So that includes following what's happening with international law and international negotiations like we're seeing at COP27 uh, at Sharm el-Sheikh now, but also um, uh, capturing and understanding what different countries are doing with their own laws and policies to try and address climate change. And then finally, working with partners at the Sabin Centre for Climate Change Law at Columbia University to understand what is happening in the courts around the world. So how is climate change becoming an issue in litigation cases, whether those are being brought by people who are trying to get governments and companies to be more ambitious on climate change, or whether those are being brought for other reasons. The project that I work one is called the Climate Change Laws of the World Project, and it includes a big open database of climate change law that I would definitely invite listeners to access. The issue of loss and damage was in the agenda list of COP for the first time this year. Could you explain to us what is loss and damage and what is its role in meeting our climate goals? So loss and damage is climate policy speak for the damages that are caused by climate change that we can't adapt to. So an example of this is the terrible flooding that we've seen in Pakistan this year, which affected 33 million people, caused at least 1,600 fatalities, is estimated to have caused around $40 billion in economic losses, uh, including around $3 billion in crop losses. And while some of that damage uh, potentially could have been avoided with more flood resilience built into the system, a certain amount of it would have occurred regardless of how much uh, Pakistan tried to adapt. 
And these kinds of damages, these kinds of negative consequences associated with extreme weather events, rising sea levels, uh, and other kind of climate catastrophes, these are issues that we need to think about who is going to pay for and deal with responding to these. And so we call that issue loss and damage, essentially the negative consequences of climate change that we cannot avoid. We know that there is a certain amount of loss and damage already um, sort of built into the system with the amount of warming that we're already seeing in the atmosphere from the greenhouse gas emissions that we have put into the atmosphere to date. But how much of this damage will ultimately exist is going to depend firstly on how much the world warms and then secondly on how well equipped the world is to adapt to foreseeable disasters like this. So one of the big sort of moral issues about this is that we know that most of these losses and damages are going to occur are going to occur in developing countries where the country has done the least to contribute to greenhouse gas emissions and to global warming, but is nonetheless the most vulnerable to these issues. And so as well as the clear humanitarian need to respond to events like the floods in Pakistan, there is also a moral issue that says that we need to recognise that countries in the global north have largely contributed to causing this problem and they need in some way to respond to the problem that they've caused. It's a bit like if somebody crashed a car into your living room, you would expect that person to pay to clean up the damage. Are we seeing much progress on this issue in the COP discussions? Which countries are likely to be pushing for action on loss and damage? So as you said previously, Loss and damage has made it onto the agenda for uh, COP27. That's the, the 27th of these climate conferences that we're having. It has made it onto the agenda for this conference in a different way to the way that it has previously been discussed. So this year, developing countries were able to ensure that the issue of loss and damage was squarely within the climate finance aspects of the agenda. Loss and damage has been discussed in previous COPs, and we have two mechanisms, the Warsaw International Mechanism on Loss and Damage and the Santiago Network, that have already been set up. And what those do is they really are about sort of trying to share knowledge, understandings, technical capacity to reduce loss and damage associated with climate change, to build resilience and to think about ways to address it. But they're not about funding. They're not about money. And so what we've seen this year is that loss and damage is very squarely on the agenda in terms of finance. And we've just seen this morning a proposal from the G77, which is a negotiating block made up of developing countries and chaired this year by Pakistan. We've seen a proposal for them that would have a decision coming out of the end of this conference of the parties, this COP, that would establish a fund for loss and damage and then move the discussion towards how is that fund going to be run, how is it going to be managed, who is going to be eligible to receive it and most importantly, where is that money going to come from. So that is quite significant progress that we've seen at this COP. Of course, that's a proposal. We don't know what the, the ultimate negotiated text is going to look like. 
I'd also, if I can, mention another proposal, which is um, a really interesting idea that's been put forward by Mia Motley, the Prime Minister of Barbados, which is being called the Bridgetown Initiative. And this is really quite a comprehensive set of ideas and proposals about how we can reform some of our existing international institutions to address climate finance more effectively. One part of that proposal, and it's a small part of the proposal, but I think worth mentioning here, is about funding for loss and damage, um, so financing for loss and damage. And essentially, the proposal suggests that countries that lose more than 5% of their gross domestic product as a result of a climate-induced catastrophe would be able to access this fund, which would in part be supported by a levy on major emitting companies. So as well as developed countries paying towards this and financial institutions supporting it, you'd also be directly taking some of the funding from particularly the oil and gas industry. And of course, that's important because oil and gas is the major source, oil, gas and coal, I should say, have been the major sources of greenhouse gas emissions to date. And there are numerous companies around the world that are continuing to make record profits in these industries, despite the way in which they are polluting our shared atmosphere. And so that's quite an interesting proposal. And I think one that that is worth following quite closely. Historically, loss and damage has been associated with terms like compensation and liability. Could you explain what these terms mean and why are they important? Yes. So historically, we have very much seen negotiations putting really a sort of a dimension of blame onto this issue. As I mentioned earlier, there's a real kind of climate justice component to this problem, which is that the countries that are most likely to suffer loss and damage are the countries that have done the least to contribute to climate change. And so it goes back to that idea of somebody recklessly driving a car into your living room you would expect them to pay up and you would you would potentially go to court and sue them to ask them to do that and you would expect compensation and liability to be made available through your legal system now in the past This issue of liability is something that global North countries, particularly the US and the European Union, have been extremely resistant to including in any of the texts associated with the COPs and the the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. They fear that it would be extremely politically unpopular at home to acknowledge some kind of fault in causing the issue and to open themselves up to really expansive damages as a result of that. And so one of the things that we've seen is language explicitly excluding the idea of legal liability for loss and damage from the text of international agreements. So Article 8 of the Paris Agreement, which is the sort of major international agreement on climate change at the moment, that covers loss and damage. But the commentary that was negotiated alongside that makes it very clear that it doesn't create liability on the part of any countries. In addition to legal risks, what are some of the financial risks that countries could face if they fail to help developing nations cope with climate change? Well, 
So I've said that legal risk is excluded um, in the text of the Paris Agreement. I should say that that doesn't mean that there aren't creative litigators looking at ways to actually make either countries or perhaps more likely companies responsible for uh, compensation for loss and damage. So I'll come back to that in a second, if I may. But just to cover that point about financial risks... I think this is something that we really need as a global community to understand. We know that we have a very interconnected global economy and that major shocks in one country can really derail economic activity in other countries. And we just need to look at the the terrible war with Russia invading Ukraine to see how that is impacting the economies of many other countries because of the interconnected connected system that we have. And so there are real financial risks associated with a failure to support countries to adapt and become as resilient as possible to climate change, and also to making sure that the impacts of loss and damage can be addressed as quickly as possible. And one sort of statistic that I'd give is that we know that for every dollar spent on resilience, so on preparing for and adapting to climate change impact, we can save four to seven dollars on the the costs associated with disasters. So that's the financial risk. I said I'd, I'd like to come back to this question of legal liability. And as I've said, at the international level, the Paris Agreement explicitly excludes liability between states. Now, there are a number of legal scholars and creative litigators who think that nonetheless there are other principles of international law that could be used to make states responsible for the harms that they are contributing to in other countries. And Vanuatu is currently trying to get agreement at the UN General Assembly to ask the International Court of Justice for an advisory opinion on what those responsibilities of states actually look like. Now, there will be a lot of debate about what the questions that Vanuatu is asking the International Court of Justice would actually be. So that won't necessarily be covering compensation, but it's definitely an area to watch. The other area where legal risk comes into it, and is, I think, really, really important, is in the area of cases that are being filed before uh, the courts of individual countries. Now, some of these have been filed against um, governments. There are, for example, a group of US Native American tribes that have filed a complaint to a UN human rights body about the way in which the US government has failed to support them, their needs to, to move from their traditional territory, and is failing to address the loss and damage that will be associated with climate change to those territories. But there are also a number of cases that have been filed against companies, major emitting companies, looking to hold them responsible for loss and damage. And two that I would point to are, firstly, an inquiry that concluded last year that was run by the Philippines Commission on Human Rights, which was looking into the legal and moral responsibility of a group of around 50 companies known collectively as the Carbon Majors that have contributed 
a huge proportion of global greenhouse gas emissions since the Industrial Revolution. And that inquiry concluded by saying that these companies do have a moral responsibility, may have a legal responsibility for their contributions to climate change, and also for the fact that they have been very, very actively deceptive, some of them, in the way that they've been talking about climate change and the reality of the risks that it poses and the way in which their products and services contribute to it. So we do see this issue of legal liability coming to the fore in a number of ways. And one of the reasons for that is that litigators are really trying to demonstrate that there is a very clear moral and therefore in many ways legal case for saying that some of the the entities that have been most responsible for this problem should be paying for the costs associated with their pollution. And how do you think the current geopolitical environment and economic uncertainty have impacted how different countries are thinking about prioritizing or responding to some of these issues that you've highlighted? I think that's a really interesting question, because, of course, one of the things that we've seen as a result of Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the resulting energy crisis in Europe is a sort of knee-jerk reaction from uh, some countries saying, well, what we need is more fossil fuels in our energy mix and more sort of domestic energy security as a result. But actually, I think that this moment really gives us a window onto what happens when you have these kinds of shocks and catastrophes affecting one aspect of the global economy. And they show us quite how much impact that can have on other areas of the global economy. Coming to the fore, some colleagues at the Grantham Institute have recently contributed to a report which has assessed the total investment needs for emerging market and developing economies to respond to climate change. And they've assessed that we need probably around $2.4 trillion of funding to be flowing into climate mitigation, adaptation, loss and damage by 2030. They've suggested that while some of that can come from developing countries and emerging economies themselves, more than half of that needs to come from external finance. And so to me, the shock that we've seen from what's happening in Ukraine and the, the effects that it's happening having around the world really show why we need to be providing that finance and thinking about ways to try and address this issue, because everyone is going to suffer if we don't. Thank you so much, Catherine, for your time and those very, very insightful points. And thank you all for listening and spending your time with us today. Next week on November 29th and 30th, Economist Impact will be hosting the World Ocean Summit Asia-Pacific in Singapore. You can register for free to join the event virtually. A link is there in the show notes. And if you'd like to see more content on sustainability, feel free to visit the Sustainability Project by Economist Impact or the Back to Blue Initiative on Ocean Sustainability. Links are in the show notes. Please do subscribe to make sure you don't miss an episode. Thank you.